The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. You're listening to Accounting Matters. I'm Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. And I'm happy to welcome back to the podcast studio one of our frequent guests, and I would probably argue a crowd favorite as well, Nicole Harger, uh, a senior director in Embark's national quality team. Nicole, welcome back. Glad Thanks. to see you here. It's been a while. Yeah. And and for those that, you know, enjoy Nicole and past episodes, I, you know, I think one thing is exciting about Nicole's return to the podcast studio. She will no longer just be a guest, but she's actually joining us in a full-time capacity as my co-host going forward. So excited uh, about that opportunity and for us to be having a lot of these conversations, bringing to you guys a lot of great insights on um, a number of accounting, reporting, sustainability, and the like matters um, in upcoming episodes. So, Nicole, welcome back. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. We have some big shoes to fill, <laughs> but uh, I'm excited and up to the challenge. So Awesome. Well, tell me what we got on the docket, I guess, for this week's episode. What are we hitting on? All right. So um, on this week's episode, I'm actually putting you in the hot seat okay. to discuss all things related to the new SEC cybersecurity disclosure rule. Yes, I know. That's a, <laughs> it is one that many are uh, talking about already. A lot of conversations around this. I know on our sister podcast, AM Now, we, we, we've hit on this and some of our just kind of newsier updates. But today, obviously, giving us a little bit more time to really kind of dive into some of the specifics here. Yep. Are you ready? I am. All right. All right. Um, so why don't you just go ahead and provide us with an overview of the new cybersecurity disclosure rules that the SEC adopted? Yeah, so end of July, uh, the SEC did adopt the final rules uh, mandating the disclosures on both cybersecurity matters that really kind of fall into two distinct categories. So there's disclosures that relate to material cybersecurity incidents, uh, which go on your Form 8K, as well as periodic disclosures that a registrant is going to have to put out on cybersecurity risk management, strategy, and governance. Um, that would be included in their annual reports on Form 10-K. Uh, the final rule issued by the SEC does differ. So for some of those that may have been kind of following some of the, the rulemaking process that the SEC went through around cybersecurity, they actually put out a proposal, you know, quite a while ago um, on this back in 2022. Um, and the new rule that they issued actually does have some differences from that proposal. So if you... Uh, read through the proposal and we're kind of up to speed on that, I think it's important to recognize there are going to be some differences from the proposal itself. Um, and then the last thing I'd probably just add about it, and I know we'll get into this a bit more today, is just that the the rule itself and kind of when it becomes effective is actually not that far away. Um, so there isn't really a lot of runway for impacted registrants to really kind of get ready to comply with these new rules. Yep. Well, hopefully with today's episode, it'll it'll be at least a step in the right direction yes. for yeah. our uh, clients and our listeners. So um, I know we'll get into timeline, into how companies can prepare um, in our discussion today, but let's start with just the main question that I'm thinking why were these rules deemed necessary? Yeah, I think it's a lot like most SEC rules. So, you know, there's always probably concerns that relate to investors. And, you know, the rule is looking to kind of address some of those concerns. So 
as it relates to cybersecurity kind of incidents, the concerns that investors had were really kind of just access to timely and kind of consistent information around those incidents and risks. Um, and so these rules really help kind of establish more consistency in what companies um, disclose and allow more decision useful information for investors and stakeholders, allow them to kind of also compare things amongst different registrants. Um, so, you know, important aspects of, you know, ways that stakeholders can use this information are addressed through the rules. And, and, and it makes sense if you think about just today's business world, <laughs> uh, you know, there's widespread, like all companies, right, are using technologies, like artificial intelligence is now like, you know, the, the buzzword today, there's a growing use of artificial intelligence by a number of registrants. If you just even think about how companies operate from, you know, going from hybrid work environments where people are accessing information yeah. from all over different places, we've got the use of uh, digital assets that are embedded in operations, you know, there's a lot of things that really can continue to just increase cybersecurity risk yep. for a lot of registrants. Um, and so, you know, there's just a growing sentiment that, um, you know, understanding what companies are doing to kind of mitigate or address these risks. And then obviously, if there are implications of any incidents, just having available information that investors and other stakeholders can make um, good decisions with that information. Um, and then I, I will just say that, you know, there are a lot of companies that are already doing some aspects of, you know, disclosure today as it relates to cybersecurity information. Um, so there's existing rules that are already in place by the SEC, but these new rules are really there to kind of help enhance a lot more of that transparency that that wasn't there and also provide investors a lot more access to that relevant information. Yep. Sticking with disclosures for a minute, talk a little bit more about the background and kind of how we got to where we are today with this rule. Yeah. So as I mentioned, so back in, it was like March, 2022, this is actually mm -hmm. when there were a couple big SEC proposals mm -hmm. this is when the climate related disclosure proposal also mm -hmm. came out. Yep. Um, but the SEC put forth the proposed regulations, um, which again, were just due to like, like I said, the reason they put these out was because of just increasing threat of cybersecurity risks and incidents to public companies and investors and the marketplace as a whole. Um, you know, the SEC made note that they really kind of observed that the way companies are managing cybersecurity risks has evolved significantly. Um, and so, you know, we need to kind of evolve what's disclosed around some of these risks and, the, and some of the existing rulemaking. So, you know, despite having some interpretive guidance in the past, so the SEC actually released kind of interpretive guidance back in 2011 um, and in 2018, that's probably the most recent, um, there's still inconsistencies in just how a lot of those disclosures are being used in practice. Um, and so these new rules are really, like I said, are there to help kind of bridge those gaps and also just ensure more comprehensive and timely incident reporting. Yeah. Um, and then I, I probably would just only add here is just like on some of that existing guidance, you know, these new rules are kind of in addition to, so this is adding new requirements, but the existing guidance in, in that kind of 28T interpretive guidance um, still remains in effect after these other rules become effective. So just wanted to highlight that yep. as well. That's important to know. So talk a little bit about who exactly is impacted by these new rules. <laughs> yeah, so the rule doesn't discriminate. <laughs> Um, so all registrant types are impacted by the, these rules. So any, any filer basically under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 are going to have to apply, um, 
these rules um, in their respective filings. So this is your domestic registrants. You know, it pulls in foreign private issuers as well. Obviously, they would, you know, disclose this information on their applicable forms. Um, but it also doesn't provide any accommodations for smaller reporting companies or emerging growth companies. Um, you know, I know sometimes we see some accommodations made for those types of registrants, but um, the rule itself will, will apply equally to all of them. Okay. Um, let's dive into the details here. You first talked about kind of two different categories of disclosures. Can we talk about the incident disclosure rule first? And then what um, specifically does that rule require here? Yeah. So cybersecurity incident disclosure is, um, kind of at its core is basically when it comes to an incident that occurs, um, companies are now required to report those incidents when material on Form 8K or Form 6K if you're a foreign private issuer. Um, and it's, it's the same type of like reporting that you have for other 8K type events. So yep. within four business days um, <laughs> of determining that the incident is material to the registrant. So there's actually a new item added to Form 8K. So it's item 105. Um, obviously, four days is not a lot of time. No, uh, it's not. <laughs> uh, I think one key distinction uh, to make about kind of the the four day reporting is that the clock of those, you know, the clock ticking on those four days rather starts when the incident is deemed material and not actually when the incident occurred. Mm -hmm. um, so there's obviously an evaluation phase that kind of needs to to take place to evaluate whether or not certain incident incidents are considered material or not. Um, but the disclosure itself in that form AK is going to talk about, you know, what you kind of would expect, right? It's the nature and kind of the scope timing, the material impact of the incident on the registrant's financial conditions and their operations, really just kind of telling people what happened and what are the implications of that. Um, I will say that in the original proposal, there was actually a lot more prescriptive disclosures that were required. So they included, I think there were five specific disclosure requirements. And some of those disclosure requirements were kind of put onto registrants to disclose regardless of whether some of the details were considered immaterial mm -hmm. about a material incident. And so the final rule actually provides, I guess you could call it relief, um, by only requiring description of material aspects of the incident. So yep. a little accommodation there. And then another thing to note is like, you know, sometimes with certain cybersecurity incidents, right? It could take a, a while to kind of get all the facts and everything kind of worked out and understand what happened and kind of done a, you know, a root cause due diligence, full impact assessment. And so you, you may not have all of the available information at the time of when you need to file your AK and, and that that's okay. I think it's just the rule talks about that you kind of have to explain that statement yep. in your filing. And then obviously continue to, get whatever information you need to obtain um, in order to sufficiently provide that information. And, and that may require you amending that form 8K um, once you have the you know updated information or have it or additional disclosure to provide to investors. Okay. You have touched on a couple of buzzwords that uh, I want to dive into a little bit deeper. The first was cybersecurity incident. So did, um, the, did the SEC help narrow that as far as what actually qualifies as one? They did. So there's actually a definition of what is um, a cybersecurity incident. So, and I'll I'll read this so I don't get the quote wrong here because it's very. <laughs> they articulate it in a very specific way. So it's an unauthorized occurrence or a series of 
related unauthorized occurrences on or conducted through a registrant's information systems that jeopardize the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of a registrant's information systems or any information residing therein. (laughs) I think one thing to kind of keep in mind when you think about this definition is that it refers to a specific incidence, but also then has that wording about a series of related Mm -hmm. incidences is that you could have a series of related incidents or occurrences or whatever that individually might be considered immaterial, but because they all relate to the same sort of thing, you know, in the aggregate could be viewed as kind of a material material. incident, which would then trigger the requirement for the form 8k. So that's, um, I think something that companies are going to have to keep in mind and even maybe something, you know, as we, they think about processes and changing controls and things like that, just kind of tracking even like minor incidents, because like I said, if there's a, an accumulation of threats or whatever, or, you know, against, you know, maybe the same vulnerability in the company, or it's against the same type of system, or it's the same kind of malicious actor that keeps going after the company in a certain instance here, like those things could aggregate to something bigger and require and kind of trigger all these requirements. Well, and Uh, I imagine too on that, you know, in order to these attackers to kind of like test to get in, right. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that it would be start off small, right. To see what we can get. So that's a good point to make our listeners. Yeah. Especially like with, you know, phishing attacks and they Mm -hmm. send it to multiple people within the organization Mm -hmm. or I don't know, you know, there's a, there's a number of ways that, small little events could could potentially create a, a a greater risk or a material incident. I think another interesting factor to kind of harp on real quickly here is is the use of the the term information systems that they have in the definition. And I say that because when they're referring to information systems, it's not just referring to those resources um, that are owned by the registrant, but it also includes any that are used by the registrant. So if you think about today's mm-hmm. business world, like, right, everyone's using a lot of third party cloud based software, yep. hosted system arrangements, things like that. Um, and so, you know, registrants are going to have to also consider incidents that occur not only just within their own organization, but also within any third party service providers that they use and what implications that could have on them as well. So that just, it really opens up a lot more, um, just kind of due diligence and governance with respect to, you know, who some of their service providers and vendors are, where they're using kind of those cloud-based or hosted, um, software arrangements. Okay. You've touched on this a few times, the keyword of what's material, right? So I think most of us kind of conceptually understand what materiality means. Um, but can we break it down a little bit here? Did the SEC actually define um, things, you know, that are um, that registrants need to think through when evaluating whether an incident is material? They do. So I guess maybe stepping back and more broadly. So the materiality evaluation for like cybersecurity incidents is still made using the same framework that was established in, you know, federal securities laws so that we use for other, you know, evaluations of materiality. So again, it's, it's focusing on what's 
important to, you know, what information is important more or less to like a reasonable investor. Um, so a lot of companies are already very familiar with that framework. Um, like I said, they're using it for financial statement materialities and other disclosure requirement materiality evaluations. Um, and like those evaluations, you know, there's a number of factors that come into play. So it's quantitative things, but it's also a lot of qualitative things. And in, with respect to cybersecurity, there's probably actually a lot more qualitative factors that actually come into play here that need to be evaluated. I guess the other thing I'd probably add around materiality is that, you know, the rule doesn't really have a specific deadline by which a registrant must determine whether an event is material, right? But that that actually kind of sets then the four day kind of trigger for the 8K filing is once they've determined an incident is is material. But the rule does explain, you know, explicitly that they wouldn't expect them to have any type of unreasonable delay in trying to make that assessment. So mm -hmm. there shouldn't be any intentional deferring of meetings or whatever the kind of the company's processes for evaluating the materiality of any incidents. Like there, there shouldn't be any trying like, you know, funny business going on where they're trying right. to prevent <laughs> making that assessment. Yep. You would want to do it with the kind of due process and get through it, you know, expeditiously as you can um, to be able to move forward and make that conclusion. And then the only other thing on materialities, I, I think it's important that companies need to recognize that there's going to be a number of cross-functional teams that are really going to have to work together. Right. Like right with any cybersecurity event, there's a number of, kind of parties within the organization that are important to be at the table having yep. these discussions. So, you know, across your chief information security officers, your chief information officers, if you have them, CFOs, finance teams, general counsel, legal teams, you know, all of these different kind of groups really kind of coming together to figure out what is the process for how they will determine materiality and then making sure that process is then embedded when actual incidents occur. Does the rule provide any examples for um, some of those factors, like what they may be in terms of cybersecurity matters to evaluate? Yeah, they do. So if you think about you know, like I said, I think there's going to be a lot of qualitative factors that are important to address um, when it relates to materiality of cybersecurity incidents. And so the, the rule itself actually provides um, some things to think through. It's kind of similar to like your, you know, your SAB 99 analysis for, for financial statement materiality. So some of the qualitative, you know, factors to keep in mind are like, and they use this word harm a lot. So it's like, is what's the harm to the company's reputation? What's the harm to a company's customer or vendor relationships? What's the harm to their competitiveness in the marketplace? Um, other things are like, you know, how does the incident potentially impact or disrupt, you know, the operations of the business? Um, you know, what type of litigation or regulatory investigations or actions could be levied against the registrant? Um, what are the actual costs or maybe the expected costs or indirect costs that the company is going to incur from the incident itself that obviously has ramifications on the business? So there's a number of like those items that, you know, you need to think through. And there's a probably even within each of those items, there's a number of questions you could be asking yourself right. um, that would go into that evaluation. So, you know, it's probably prudent that companies are being thoughtful as they kind of go through that analysis and obviously documenting and having this stuff just in case there was any questions raised by the SEC on potentially how they determine maybe an event was or was not material. 
They use the word harm a lot. Mm-hmm. Does the rule actually require harm to occur in order for the incident to be material? No. So the uh, the rule actually included in its adopting release language that basically states that a material cybersecurity incident may not always result in harm um, in all instances. So, you know, you could have a company who has its intellectual property that may be stolen. You know, maybe there's no immediate harm today that mm-hmm. you can see. So yep. you can really, you know, make the conclusion that there is harm, but it could maybe have harm in the foreseeable future. You know, like if that ultimately gets sold off to somebody else or a competitor gets a hold of it or something like that, where, you know, there could be future harm, but today we can't, we're not able really to determine what that harm is. That could still be a material incident. So there are circumstances where, harm won't be like clearly evident, but in a lot of cases, I do think you'll see, you know, it kind of checking some of those boxes and those qualitative factors that we just walked through. Is there anything else you want to add on um, to the incident disclosures? Yeah, I guess the last thing I'd probably add is there's kind of a provision in the rule about when you can maybe delay your 8K filing. And so this is essentially when the U.S. Attorney General, um, more or less indicates that providing these disclosures could create a substantial risk to national security <laughs> or public safety, right? Yep. So it's almost like this this kind of safety net there, like, hold on, we, we shouldn't be putting all this out there. This could actually maybe cause more issues mm-hmm. initially. So like there might need to be some more um, due diligence investigation type stuff happening before we release certain information. Um, so registrants that, you know, kind of get that, delay provided by the U.S. Attorney General, you know, they, they'll obviously have to notify the SEC of that determination in writing. Um, and so that delay can either, you know, provide up to like a 30-day kind of deferral of providing that AK filing. You know, there can also be a secondary delay if warranted for an additional 30 days. Um, you know, if for whatever reason, they need more time before they want to release those disclosures. And then in very extreme circumstances, you know, there can even be an extended de- delay for kind of a final third delay, which is up to an additional 60 days. Who determines like how the U.S. attorney actually gets involved? Yeah. So the SEC actually then created a process. So kind of recognizing like registrants are going to have to have you know, they're working with the SEC because that's who they report to. But yep. then there's kind of also this like interagency governmental process that probably needs to occur. So the SEC actually has established a process within the Department of Justice um, to help facilitate kind of the U.S. Attorney General's determination of any if, national security public safety risk. So it's really more up to the SEC and the um, Attorney General versus the actual... Yeah, so the Department of Justice would basically notify the registrant that that communication to the SEC has been made so that then the registrant can, you know, they can delay their 8K filing um, in those circumstances where there's a potential threat. Okay, let's switch over to the other category of disclosure, focusing on the risk management strategy and governance matters of cybersecurity. How does the rule address this? Yeah, so this rule creates also another new item um, in Reg SK. So it's item 106B um, that'll include these new disclosure requirements. And like I said, these would go in kind of your annual 
your annual filings, mm-hmm. so your your 10K for um, domestic registrants. Um, and really, you can kind of think of it broken down into two separate groups here. So we can kind of lump risk management and strategy disclosures in one and then governance matters in another. So for risk management and strategy, you know, there's really kind of a need to focus on two different things here. So the first one's, you know, kind of high level, it's what you would expect, which is really just kind of a description of the risk management system that the registrant has that talks about what are your processes that you guys have for identifying, assessing, and managing any material risks from cybersecurity threats? Uh, making sure that you got enough detail in that disclosure so that reasonable investors really can understand kind of how those processes work. Um, so some things that will be included, you know, in those disclosures is like whether and how these processes have been integrated into the registrant's overall risk management system or processes, whether the registrant, you know, engages other assessors, outside consultants, auditors, or other third parties in connection with any of their processes. Um, And then whether the registrant has processes to kind of oversee and identify material risks from cybersecurity threats associated with its use of any kind of third party providers. Uh, The second part of that disclosure is really require a registrant to describe whether any risks from cybersecurity threats, including any previously identified cybersecurity incidents, either have materially affected or could reasonably like materially affect the registrant and just explain like how those effects are going to impact any strategy, results of operations, financial conditions, and you know, all the all the traditional stuff that you would expect the the disclosure to go into. Okay. So what about from a governance perspective? What does the rule require there? Governance disclosures focus on kind of two groups, which I think we can all guess the two groups. It's going to be management and <laughs> yep. then, you know, those who kind of provide governance over management, which is the registrant's board. Yep. So for management, they're required to disclose like really what's management's role in assessing and managing the registrant's <laughs> material risks from cybersecurity threats. So, sense. Uh, you know, things you'll talk about here is kind of like, which management positions or committees are responsible kind of for assessing and managing those risks. Um, And if, you know, there's any specific individuals that have relevant expertise in the field, um, you know, kind of highlighting some of that, any processes by which those people or committees um, are informed about or how they monitor and prevention, mitigation, detection, et cetera, remediation of cybersecurity incidents. And then whether any of those people or those committees report information and risk to the boards, which I'm sure they all do, right? Mm -hmm. And so for the board, they're then required to just have disclosure about really kind of what's their oversight responsibility, right? So um, talking about which board committee or subcommittees are ultimately kind of tagged as being responsible for the oversight of all this. Um, talking about any board committees, you know, what are the processes for how they get informed about any incidents or risks. And then I guess one big change from kind of the proposed rule is that um, the final rule does not require disclosure of any cybersecurity expertise by the board members. But obviously, if you had it, you know, it's something you could you could include in your disclosure. It's just not um, not a requirement of a disclosure to include that. So let's talk about um, timeline for compliance of these rules. What does that look like? Uh, I think sh- <laughs> the short answer is soon. ASAP. <laughs> ASAP. Yeah. So there's 
There's two waves of effective dates that I think you have to kind of keep in mind here. So we have, you know, the two different types of reporting, right? We've got the incident reporting um, on Form 8K. So for that part of the rule itself, that is effective for all registrants other than smaller reporting companies, starting with incidents that occur on or after December 18th, 2023. So this year, right? Yep. Um, for SRCs, there's a little deferral for them. This is kind of the only accommodation um, that's there. And so it would be effective for smaller reporting companies uh, June 15th of next year. Okay. Uh, for the periodic reporting, so what goes kind of in your Form 10K, uh, that's for all registrants. It's going to be effective for years ending after December 15th of this year. So any calendar year-end registrants um, are going to have to include those disclosures in their, you know, their Form 10K this year. Okay. The other thing I'd add is that the final rules do require that the disclosures uh, be provided in kind of inline XBRLs, so more or less have to tag those disclosures. Yep. Um, to allow for more useful um, assessment of the disclosures themselves. But that requirement to include that kind of inline XBRL um, is actually delayed for one year beyond the initial compliance date with the related disclosures. So okay. you, you could start tagging this year, but you wouldn't be required, required to. to. It would be in the following year. That was nice. They gave a little bit of extra time for yeah, that. Yeah, a little accommodation <laughs> there, I guess. <laughs> um, so let's end on, let's talk about what companies should be doing to prepare for these new rules. What advice do you maybe have for them? Yeah, so there's, there's a number of things you could do. So I think the, you know, kind of with anything new, it's always kind of looking at your current state. So yeah. kind of reviewing <laughs> like, what is the company's current cybersecurity incident response process? Like, do we have one? Right. <laughs> is it robust enough? Kind of, you know, what is our readiness to comply with the new reporting requirements based on kind of where we're at today? Mm -hmm. So that readiness, gap assessment, whatever you'd like to call it, I think that's something that would be um, prudent for companies to get on quickly. Um, especially because, you know, incident reporting potentially could start soon if you were to have an incident right. um, not too far off. Um, then, it, obviously, I think the next big step is that materiality kind of exercise, <laughs> right? So this disclosure, I'm sorry, the reporting for Form 8K is for material incidents. So really kind of figuring out, like, how do we determine what is a material incident? So establishing what is the process that the company is going to go through to determine materiality and how they're going to evaluate that incidents against that materiality process, you know, making sure that that's robust enough and that all, um, all kind of stakeholders, parties that need to be at the table are, you know, understand what needs to happen and what questions need to be asked, maybe what information you need as part of making that materiality assessment. So you know right away kind of like what you're looking for or you need to get quickly right. in order to start moving on that. Um, I think that's a critical step. And then, you know, likely all of these, you know, between the gap assessment readiness, kind of trying to embed some new materiality determinations in like there's going to be a number of just process controls, changes that are going to need to take place. But then as we talked about earlier, the, you know, information systems aren't just kind of like, what are your own? Like it also includes third parties. So yep. you need to also be thinking about how you engage with your third party service providers. And if there was any implications <laughs> that occurred there, you know, what is your process or communication protocol for how you 
um, you know, you work with those different providers to get whatever is necessary for you to make these determinations yep. and provide the appropriate disclosures. Um, and then I think it's also important for boards. Like they need to also recognize that their oversight role is now going to include, um, you know, a lot of boards are already very focused on cybersecurity, right? And it's probably something that, you know, very active boards are already having a lot of conversations about and things that they're already discussing, but just recognizing that there is a, an additional component of, um, their responsibility and obviously like understanding what they're going to need in order to, you know, particularly on these incidents when like you have to make kind of timely mm -hmm. decisions and provide timely information, just mm -hmm. their oversight role and understanding how companies come to those conclusions and making sure that they have access to the appropriate information so that they feel like um, they're doing their due diligence and their oversight role. And then I think lastly, kind of like as you're thinking about building your disclosures is just, you know, making sure that disclosures are I guess thoughtful enough to provide the necessary information and timely information that investors and stakeholders need, but also, you know, making sure that you're, you're not over disclosing mm -hmm. so that you potentially could be exposing certain vulnerabilities, right? right? Like you gotta, you gotta almost like balance, like fine line there. what, what you provide, um, as you're kind of talking about how a certain incident occurred, um, because you'd hate to like expose yourself to something potentially in doing that. But again, that kind of goes just into your overall kind of risk management and around cybersecurity and, and making sure that you're really kind of shoring up any, any holes in your processes or where, you know, risk kind of like a lead to certain incidents that need to be plugged out. So okay. that'd be my advice. All right. <laughs> That's good advice. All right. Cool. All right. Well, this was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Made it through. We did. Yes. We did. Um, I think that's a good spot for us today yeah today yeah i think this was helpful for our listeners so yeah hopefully they'll they'll start thinking about this if they haven't already yeah definitely you know like i said it's it's not that far off so um sec registrants definitely something you know have on your your sh short-term to-do list <laughs> i would say uh and definitely uh you know look into the rules specifically if you haven't had a chance to read through it um obviously you know, Embark is here to help. If people have questions, definitely connect with Nicole or I on uh, LinkedIn. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we'd be happy to happy to to do that. And I guess until next time, yeah. we'll see you on another episode of Accounting Matters. All right. And just a sneak peek into our next episode of Accounting Matters, we'll be covering the newly released, or, or maybe I should say recently released, IFRS Sustainability Standards, IFRS S1 and S2, which we have covered on our sister podcast, AM Now, but we'll be doing a much deeper dive into some of those requirements and kind of when we can expect to see some of those uh, standards being applied by reporting entities across the world. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.